Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Well, an interesting day. I have to admit, I, I was wrong. I was actually sitting in a bar last night. And I was having a conversation with a number of people, lawyers and non-lawyers, and the big question was, when do you think the jury is going to reach the verdict in the Daryl Brooks case? And my prediction was, well, I think it's going to come back about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And my thinking was that they'll come in, they'll talk about the case for a little bit, they'll take their time, and then they'll hang around for lunch. That, That was kind of my thought. They're going to stay for lunch. Well, obviously... Apparently, there wasn't even enough, and I understand this, there wasn't even enough to discuss to keep them to lunch. And so you had the jury that came back, what, about 8.30 this morning, and by 10.30, they had announced that there were a little before that, that they had a, a verdict. And you heard it here on WTMJ, Judge Doro, reading the guilty verdicts, guilty, 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 guilty. After the first couple, you got the idea of where this was going to go. But I think, you know, what you definitely saw, at least in my opinion, was a case where where justice to the extent the court system can provide justice. And by that I mean you've got six people who lost their lives because of the results of the actions of this psychopath. You, you can't bring those six people back. You can't ever make those families who've lost loved ones or people who've lost friends, you can't ever make them whole. For the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people who were injured by this psychopath, you you know, you injuries sometimes can heal, at least the physical injuries, but you still, you're always going to have the, those psychic scars of being, you know, run over. So there's no way you can ever really get justice for the horrors of what this guy did, but to the extent that we, we have a criminal justice system that, that holds people accountable. Yeah, you, you saw that happen today, and you saw it happen with the speed of the verdict, and you also saw it happen with the, the results of, of the verdict. And as I've been saying all along, this is what us former prosecutors always termed kind of a slow guilty plea. And I understand that there's going to be issues raised on appeal about, well, should they have let him represent himself? Because clearly he wasn't qualified to represent himself. But uh, here you have a guy who's exhibited incredibly bad judgment all the way along. So um, I think the judge and the prosecution did an absolutely outstanding job during the course of the trial demonstrating patience, allowing Brooks to make his record over and over and over again, and showing remarkable re- restraint. And, and candidly, that's the quality of a good judge. Given how he baited Judge Doro, how he baited the prosecution, given the constant interruptions, all these types of things, and, and given the fact that, I mean, it, it would, what really adds insult to injury is the fact that you have a guy who's a monster who is doing this. It, it's not like, oh, you have somebody who's this neophyte in the criminal justice system, and the big bad criminal justice system is coming down with all its weight on his shoulders. And No, that, that's not the case. Here you have a psychopath who killed six people, injured dozens and dozens and dozens of more, who is clearly trying to do everything he can to manipulate the system, 
cause controversy, give him his 15 minutes of fame, and, you know, put the spotlight on him, all those types of things. So, I mean, given the fact that everybody in that courtroom knew what he was doing, the, the restraint that the judge showed, I think, was admirable. Admirable. The, the irony, and I've been pointing this out for a while, is that to, to answer a question a number of people have, he has an absolute constitutional right to appeal. The first one, first one is free, the one to the appellate court, and it is paid for by the taxpayers. So the ultimate irony here is you have a, a psychopath defendant who elected to represent himself on appeal, the taxpayers will provide him with an attorney who will undoubtedly raise an issue that the biggest issue on appeal was not his underlying guilt, but rather was that he was unqualified and ineffective to represent himself. So he should get, because he chose to not have an attorney and represent himself, we're now going to pay for an attorney to argue that he should have had an attorney at the lower trial level. It's I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, as, as somebody who, now look, I, I didn't watch every minute of testimony, but I think both the court and the prosecution were very, very good in this case in, I think, not pushing the envelope. This wasn't one where I got the sense that the prosecution was trying to take advantage of a, a defendant who didn't know his way around the courtroom and try to introduce evidence that otherwise wouldn't have been introduced int- admissible. I didn't see any indications of that, and that's that that's a compliment to the prosecutor, and it's also it's also a comment on the fact that the evidence of Daryl Brooks's guilt was just absolutely undeniable. All right, we do this from time to time when there are the, these major things that happen. And I do have, there was something that happened yesterday that was a sideshow to this that I want to talk about in a little bit. But the, the verdicts have just came in, come in. You, you, you've heard them here. I mean, guilty, 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 guilty. Clearly, I think it's the right reaction. He will be sentenced to multiple mandatory life terms in prison. He will if there is any justice at all, not be released. Now, now who knows? You could always have the, the Prison Overcrowding Act of 2040 or whatever that looks at people who are sentenced to life in prison without parole and decides that, okay, their, their sentences can be reduced. But I do think it's a safe bet to suggest that Daryl Brooks is never going to be out uh, again. So I think to the extent that we're looking for justice, that is justice. But I want to open up the phone lines and give you the chance to react to you know what you've been hearing over the course of the last three or four weeks, to what you heard this morning. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Don't have a specific question, but your reaction to the Daryl Brooks trial in general, the way it was handled, the way Daryl Brooks was handled, and the verdict today, which guarantees that he will spend the rest of his life behind bars. 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Back to discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I I just, uh, electronic town hall, three and a half weeks, the Daryl Brooks trial, it's, you know, a little less than a year. And that's it that it took to, from the, the time this incident happened to the time that the trial phase has now been completed, your reaction to you know any aspect of the trial. Let's start with Danny in Janesville. Danny, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, I thought it was handled extremely professionally. I mean, the judge was just phenomenal. Um, I've been listening to your commentation, your, your commentators, you know, all the way through mm-hmm. the whole thing. And... 
There's one big question that I have, though, and of course, I knew what the verdict was going to be a long time ago, but you being a recovering lawyer, mm-hmm. I know you could probably answer this for me. Does he have grounds for an appeal now for inadequate representation, considering he was his own lawyer? Um, Danny, thanks for the call. And, and the answer to your question is, um, is yeah. I, I mean, th- when you ask me, does he have grounds? If you're asking me, do I think that the argument is going to go anywhere? My, my answer to that is no. But yeah, th- this will be an issue that will definitely be raised. And as I was saying a couple minutes ago, the ultimate irony of this is that because he has the right to appeal, and since he is indigent, he has the right to have the taxpayers appoint a lawyer for him. The taxpayers will be appointing a lawyer on appeal who will undoubtedly— look, look, this isn't a situation where— I, I don't know you. In order to find that, what the appeals courts are always looking for is like reversible error. You know, is there is there a piece of evidence that was admitted at trial that was that shouldn't have been admitted that was so prejudicial that you know all the other stuff that could have been admitted you know outweighed it? And, and you look at a trial like this, his guilt is overwhelming. So you're not going to have an appeal saying, "Oh, the judge admitted you know this piece of testimony," or you know this this was hearsay and it shouldn't have been admitted. This is not that type of case because the evidence of guilt is just so overwhelming, and there's so much evidence there. I would imagine that the only issue that that has any, and I'm not suggesting it has merit. I want to be real careful here. But if I'm the appellate lawyer and I'm trying to think, okay, my job is to try to figure out how to convince an appellate court to reverse this case and send it back for another trial, I, I think the only issue that is out there is the argument of, of ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, you, and so they will undoubtedly be raising this argument that the judge was flawed, that her her error the original sin, as it were, were uh, was allowing Daryl Brooks to represent himself when you know he clearly you know didn't have the the ability to do that. And the problem with it this is, and we discussed this when this whole thing was coming up, is that you know people have the right to make bad decisions. And I, I think it was explained to him clearly over and over again that this is a really bad decision to try to represent yourself. So. At the same time, I mean, people make these bad decisions. So just because you made this incredibly bad decision to try to represent yourself, that in and of itself, I think, is, is going to be it's going to be tough because they tried to talk him out of doing this, and he decided no, he just still wanted to go ahead and do it. So unless you've got psychiatric evidence or something saying that he was just incompetent, and they don't have that evidence, I mean, mentally incompetent to make this decision, as opposed to incompetent as a lawyer, um, that's that's the issue. And you're going to be, I think, it's going to be a really really tough sell. The other thing that you're going to have to establish on appeal if you're trying to raise that issue is, what would somebody have done otherwise? Let, let us say that Daryl Brooks had the very, very best criminal defense attorney in the state of Wisconsin. Now, forget the state of Wisconsin. Let's say he had the very, very best criminal defense attorney in the United States. All right, what issues, what would that attorney have done, you know, given the overwhelming evidence that was introduced that would have resulted in a different sort of verdict? You know, because you're also going to have to show that. You know, what what would the best lawyer have done? How how did what would the best lawyer have done to I I don't know get get evidence thrown out or whatever? And that's going to be a very tough sell. So I, I guess if you were asking me my opinion 
as to, you know, will this issue be raised that he was denied his constitutional rights to a fair trial and denied his Sixth Amendment right to counsel because, you know, they chose to let him represent himself. That argument will be made. There'll be various iterations of that argument that will be raised. But if you're asking me, do I think it's going anywhere? I, my answer would be be no. And so that that's, I do not think we're going to see Daryl Brooks in a courtroom again, period, would be my best guess. Um, let's read a couple texts. 855-616-1620 is our number. Jeff, you summed up things very well. Thank you for that. I still believe that our founding fathers never intended a process like this to occur. The process was a farce as far as I'm concerned, um, but I am pleased that the jury made a quick decision. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think yeah, the, the problem is that every once in a while you you get psychopaths in the court system who decide that they they want to game it. And, and that's what this whole thing was. It was his effort to game it. And at some point in time, you you, you can't save people from themselves. And, 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 I, and there's no sympathy at all to Daryl Brooks. He's guilty as hell. No question about it. He deserves to rot in prison for the, the rest of his natural life. So th- there's no sympathy at all. But, you know, when you decide you're going to make these bad decisions like, hey, I'm not going to – I'm going to represent myself or whatever. Jeff, I think Judge Doro was absolutely amazing. Um, I am curious, is there any chance she may have erred when she made a very brief gaffe during one of the exchanges outside the presence of the jury when she said the words to an effect of your conduct on that date? Um, So, uh, no. To answer that, I I think there there is nothing that I have seen that Judge – Doro did in the presence of the jury or outside the presence of the jury, which would um, which would render a, an issue for appeal. Um, Jeff, if he's allowed an appeal, and he is, why can't the court system say, okay, your case is next up in 2033? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. He, he's going to be in prison. He's not going to be free while the appeal is, is going on. Jeff, will the judge be the one who hands down the sentence? The answer is yes. I can't wait to hear her and what she has to say to him. Yeah, that will be interesting during the course of sentencing because, you know, he'll he'll be able to make his spiel. And although, again, he, you know, under the six charges that he's facing, he, he's going to be looking at life in prison without parole. Jeff, why can't they sentence him right away instead of wasting all the taxpayer money? That's probably a month down the road. What they do is they go out and they do a, a pre-sentence report where they, they find aggravating and mitigating factors. They look at his background, all those sorts of things. It, it's In a case like this, it's pretty much a fait accompli. You know what the, the sentence is going to be, but nevertheless, that, that's just the system. And I don't think people should be worked up about it. I mean, again, he, he's not going anywhere, whether he's sentenced tomorrow or whether he's sentenced two weeks from tomorrow or whether he's sentenced a month from tomorrow. doesn't matter. I mean, he's, he's going to be behind bars in for, you know, the rest of his life. Jeff, what about the social media post on Reddit? We will talk about that in a little bit. Um, uh, Jeff, could he say he got an unfair jury because um, it was an all-white jury? <clears throat> well, they, they can raise that, but th- that's that's a very, again, that's a very, very tough sell unless you can show <clears throat> some sort of, of prejudice. And the, the jury pool in Waukesha it is what it is. That's really what you have to do is you have to challenge the, the makeup of the jury pool. And I don't think that argument is going on. Jeff, I'm glad justice was served, but why did this take so long for the process? This should have been addressed in a few days. Well, 
I mean, if the point is, why does it take so long to get him to trial? Actually, in this particular case, given all the charges that are there, getting him to trial in, in the space of like 10 months isn't really that long because it, it takes time in our system. Um, so I, I think that's a situation as well. One of our texters with capital letters, justice. Yeah, I think it's um, justice. A couple of our texters are saying, well, we think he did a good job handling him. She should have never allowed him to represent himself. Well, see, that's, I mean, but that's the trick box. you got to understand the trick box that the judge is in is that if she, if he says, I'm competent, I'm making this decision, I want to represent myself, and then you force him to have an attorney, well, then you're, you've created an issue on appeal as well because people have the right to represent themselves. They have the right to make stupid decisions. They have the right to make foolish decisions, and, and that this was all of that. But if, if you said, no, I'm not going to allow you to represent yourself, then what you're effectively doing is you're opening yourself up for the flip argument, side argument on appeal that, hey, you've denied him his Sixth Amendment right to counsel of his choice because he wanted to represent himself. So it's kind of a, a, a no-win situation. One of our callers was asking, you know, what, what was the dangerous weapon in this case? And that's the car. I mean, if you try to, if you try to, I mean, a gun is, can be a dangerous weapon, a knife can be a dangerous weapon. In this case, the car and using that in the fashion they did, he did, was what was considered to be the dangerous instrumentality. So I think the bottom line, if we summarize this, is justice is served. Um, And I think there is an element of that. Jeff, all things aside, the judge is the true winner. Um, She's a beast. She deserves an award for the way she handled that. Um, I think she needs major recognition. I think she was awesome. Well, and, and I will say this. Sometimes, think about the O.J. Simpson trial, if you were old enough to remember that. You had the judge, Lance Ito, who became fascinated with his own publicity and who clearly loved to be on television and loved all the attention he got. And that's a habit. It's a problem that some judges fall into. I don't think Judge Doro fell into that trap at all. I think she was just like, let's let's blast ahead. Let's get this thing um, through. So, um, and I think she did a good job of that. Jeff, I was appalled at Brooks's closing statement when he said, forgiveness should be considered. <laughs> yeah, well, um, obviously, it's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to forget and not hold accountable. Stop. One of the things that, and I said it earlier, that one of the things I I give the judge and I give the prosecution a lot of credit for is I I think they they have, by and large, they they didn't take the bait. You know, Daryl Brooks was constantly, I think, trying to provoke and prod and and induce them to introduce evidence that might have created an issue or make a ruling that might have created an issue. And, And I think in as a general, I'm going to not forget a general rule. I mean, I think the prosecution, the judge did a great job of, of not rising to that because one of the things everybody wanted to do is get this trial done. 
His guilt was never really in question. Guilt was never in question. Forget the really modifier. His guilt was never in question. So they want to get this trial done, but they also want to make sure that the verdict is bulletproof, unimpeachable, because the last thing anybody wants is to have to come back two years from now and try to recreate this trial, to do it all over again. So you want to make sure you don't do any of those things that creates reversible error, which brings me to, you know, what has created the issue and the buzz on on social media. Apparently, somebody decided to go onto the social media site Reddit and post something. And I've seen this. It's been subsequently taken down. But the the posting, um, the person who goes on social media posts and claims to be a juror in the Brooks case. All right, so they're they're doing that, and the um, the in the course of the post, they're they're talking about how I I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, but nevertheless I've got some comments about this, and the post goes on to talk about how at least in in the opinion of the poster who is claiming to be a juror that there's problems with the trial and think they think that Brooks is being unfairly denied his right to raise the the questions of whether or not he's a sovereign citizen and whether the court has jurisdiction and things of the like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they end up posting this. Well, the last thing, the very last thing you need in a case like this is is something that calls into question the integrity of the juror. So this, this gets out there and of course, it starts this social media firestorm, you know, appropriately so, about, okay, is there really a juror who's posting these things, et cetera, et cetera? The judge finds out about it. The judge orders an investigation, and it's quickly determined that this was, this was a prank. It, it wasn't one of the jurors that did this, but rather it was somebody that, that thought this would be funny. So what we're going to do is we're going to create this disruption. Now, I don't know that they've identified the person who, who did it. And actually, you know, subsequently, um, the, the person who supposedly did it goes on the same website and says, look, I, I, was just, I thought this was funny. This was a prank. I, I didn't realize it was going to create the firestorm that it did. No, duh. So in any event, this is now you have this kind of side issue. They've dismissed it as, you know, something that's going to affect this trial, but it's certainly caused a lot of problems. And of course, you've got, you know, Brooks, who is in court. He's talking about how it's a concerning issue. It should be, you know, um, it's obviously been done by somebody sitting in this courtroom very close to this trial, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm worried that it's going to prejudice me. All right, our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I understand pranks. I get it. I, I, I think I have as good a sense of humor as most people, maybe better than, 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 than some. But this was not funny. And just like, what was it, last week we had the, the series of, of fake Hoax calls, you know, the swatting stuff, the stuff that where all these schools got the phone calls saying there's an active shooter situation, etc., and it, they, they all turn out to be hoaxes. And to my knowledge, there, there hasn't been anybody charged in the connection with making those, but it should be. This, this is another one of those examples. You have somebody that goes on social media with the intent of creating a disruption to something that, well, candidly, you're just trying to get through, get the conviction, and move on. My question is, how big a deal is this? 
should there be a full-scale investigation of the person that posted this false this false report, which at least caused a temporary disruption in the proceedings, in the minds of some people, maybe it could cause, I don't know, some questions about the verdict. Could this really have been somebody in the courtroom or somebody on the jury that was doing this? Is this a prank, or is this something that law enforcement should take seriously? Our number, 855-616-1620, we discuss in just a moment. Let me read you a portion of what was posted on social media so you can get an idea of exactly how things were were, were at least what sort of a frenzy happened, you know, yesterday, at least the judge had to deal with. So this is posted on one of the social media sites. So to start with, I shouldn't, I obviously shouldn't be here. I'm not allowed to look up stuff about this trial or really have any connection with the internet, but nobody actually follows sequestering rules anyways. Hence, I am obviously posting anonymously. I accidentally wandered in here a few days ago from this thread on the main Reddit account. Here is my opinion of the trial. First off, I think it's pretty obvious due to the chain of custody that defendant, in fact, Mr. Brooks, he did it. However, I've had doubts throughout the trial with various aspects of the case. The judge is clearly biased against Mr. Brooks. I got that feeling from when we were in the jury room, and my eyes have been opened as to how she acted towards him when the jury was out of the room. Clearly, she's not an impartial judge and has been trying to belittle, demean, bully, and pull procedural tricks on him. Mr. Brooks has clearly not been given the chance to plead his case in court. He's been silenced and mocked at almost every turn. While he may be loud or crass at times, I still believe he deserves to be heard. I do have significant doubts about subject matter jurisdiction. I didn't understand it when discussed in court because the defendant was repeatedly silenced, but I do understand now. You get the idea. Our number, 855-616-1620. All right, how big a deal is this? Now, they, they found out about it. They determined that this wasn't a juror who had posted these things, and so they've moved on. But this is now one of these things that caused quite a bit of a frenzy. Is this a prank? And, and after this all came out and the Waukesha Sheriff's Office started investigating, somebody else posted, oh, this was just a prank. I was just trying to be funny. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Louise, who is calling us from Ozaki County. Hi, Louise. Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, This is just a distraction. Uh, This is from a person of the same ilk as Daryl Brooks. He wants attention, and this is one way to get it. Uh, It's a distraction. This is ridiculous. Don't spend any more time of law enforcement on this kind of rubbish. Uh, So you you think just let you think? Well, right. I mean, it's clearly you know BS. But do you think that they should invest? Do you think that people should be allowed to do this with the intent of perhaps disrupting a trial that that has gone on for three, you know, weeks and a high profile thing? Do do you think it's no harm, no foul, I guess? You just let it go? Well, I... I, I really think that then you're going to spend a lot of time on something that is basically rubbish. Anybody who listened to this, anybody who watched it, anybody knows that this was rubbish. Mm-hmm. And the police are saying this is a hoax. So if by, by making a big thing out of it, you're, get, you're doing exactly what this person wants. Let's back up here a minute. What, what we're all forgetting is that Daryl Brooks should have been stopped a long time ago, a yeah. long time ago, 
the judicial system in Milwaukee County is responsible for letting him go to get to the point where he did something so horrendous that he was finally stopped. Yeah, Louise, we I, need to take a yeah, no, no, I, I think, no, look, I, 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 look, I, I get it. No, look, I, first of all, I, I understand, and I, I don't want to go too far afield on this. I, I, I agree he should never have been out on bail, and this is now, at least now people are looking at what's been going on in John Chisholm's office for years and years because Daryl Brooks is just the, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this. But I guess where I disagree with you is this notion that, okay, you can post this sort of stuff with the idea of, trying to disrupt a, a pretty important and significant trial and and then not be held accountable for it. Yes, is it rubbish? Of course it's rubbish. There's no question about it. But this, at least in my mind, it's not a prank. It is an attempt to obstruct justice or something of, of the like. And, and yeah, I think it deserves to be investigated. And if they can determine who it was that posted this, um, it, it's pretty apparent. My guess is this is somebody that was posted that, that was credibly sympathetic to Daryl Brooks, maybe somebody close to Daryl Brooks. And, and if you find somebody who's doing that, if they're doing that with the intention of trying to disrupt the trial, and it seems to me that is a reasonable inference, yeah, then I think it's a big deal. Is it rubbish? Of course. But is it worth trying to figure out how who tried to do this? Um, my guess would be, you know, absolutely. Let's talk to Greg in Pewaukee. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Greg. Good afternoon, I should say. Good afternoon, sir. I would like to say that, um, you know, your your points are spot on. I happen to be an attorney also. Uh, I think that <clears throat> given the fact that they caught him uh, in recordings telling his mother he was going to try and delay the trial with COVID, um, I would say that there's a greater than even chance that this uh, this was more than just a prank. I think that uh, although it might be difficult for them to ever tie it up, but that uh, Brooks got somebody uh, close to him to try and do this. Um, uh, it's just very nefarious in my mind. And um, his whole attitude throughout the trial was uh, to try and disrupt a constantly interrupting the judge and, mm -hmm. and doing the things that he did. Uh, you know, he was his own worst enemy. Yeah, no, thank, thank well, it, Clearly, it was, I mean, look, Greg, I mean, here, I, I say I'm with you on this. Okay, what, what is the purpose of doing this? And, and who does this benefit? Now, it, it didn't, it, I mean, the judge handled it perfectly. So, I, I mean, but, but what, what is the intent behind doing something like this? The intent is very, very clear that you are trying to throw a monkey wrench into the trial process. The trial has gone on. You know, you're in the middle of closing arguments. I think this happened like yesterday afternoon. You know, Brooks, is, you're correct, has been trying to look at, you know, anything he can do to delay the trial, to, to delay this inevitable result. So, you know, what happens? Well, all right, what, what do you do? Well, you, you say that the jury, the jury has been tainted. And, you know, this now we need to, to take this look, this look. So, I mean, somebody posing as a juror posts this thing up there, which clearly, if this was a juror that actually did it, I mean, then then you'd have all sorts of issues out there. You know, do we have to poll all the jurors who did this? You know, what did they end up doing? Now, again, they could determine it was a prank, and, and that's fine. But this was clearly, I think, what was the intent behind it? And to me, the intent is obviously it was done to try to mess up the trial. That, to me, 
should be criminal. And whether it's an obstruction of justice charge, look, I don't claim to be an expert on state laws, but my guess is if I was sitting in the DA's office and you knew who did this, I, you know, give me 15 minutes with the statute books and I can probably find you two or three or four things that this laws that this was violated. Um, let's talk to Chris in Hales Corners. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Chris. Uh, yes, there is a state statute that uh, defined as disorderly conduct via computer, and I believe this meets all the elements of that statute. Okay. What, what do you say? Is, is it worth pursuing, do you think? Yes, I think it should. I think the, so much of our society is controlled by social media, and there's so much knee-jerk reactions to things that people post. If people are going to start posting false stuff, they should be accountable for it. Yeah, I and thanks for calling. I I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you completely because this this is clearly done. Like I say, with the idea and the timing of this, right before the jury is scheduled to get this case, the timing of this. I don't buy this idea that this was a prank. I believe that this was done by somebody with the intent of trying to screw up the trial. Oh, here you have this deal that there's somebody on the jury who's now violating the court order. Nobody pays attention to this question or anything. The judge is biased against him. All these type of things, which if nothing else was designed to try to say, okay, we're going to have to call proceedings off. Do we need to look at a mistrial? No, this is a big darn deal. And I think the Waukesha Sheriff Department should be aggressively pursuing this. And if they are able to find people, now look, I also understand it's tough. That's the thing. The internet is the sea of anonymity. And sometimes it's tough to figure out, you know, who did it. But to the extent they can determine who did it, and to the extent that that person is within the the jurisdiction of the court, I I say just drop the hammer on them because you can't have this type of stuff occurring. It didn't work here, but who knows? Maybe it would work next time. Yeah, you see this, this, and we're talking about this this hoax posting that was made yesterday by somebody claiming to be a juror who you know, had all sorts of comments, uh, prejudicial things to say about the judge and the prosecutor, and and it, it turns out to be a hoax. But it was clearly made with the effort of trying to throw a monkey wrench into th- this this trial. And my point is, you can't allow people to do it. I understand that you've got this drive-by internet that's there, and people think they can do anything that they want and not be held accountable. Well, maybe they should be. One of our texters says, the hoster should be made an example of, so the next person won't think about making these type of comments. Um, You know, one of our other uh, uh, texters is saying, look, here's the deal. What What if somebody you know, does this in another high-profile case. You know, what about, you know, if you've got the Uvalde case, you know, that's going on, or when that goes to trial? What if this becomes the new norm where, you know, you have people that just decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to disrupt this, maybe because we, we feel sympathy, sympathy for the defendant, or alternatively, maybe just because we think it's cool. Nope, I think this is a big deal. I think they should investigate it. And like I say, if they're able to identify the person who did it, and that's tough, and if that person is within the jurisdiction, if, look, if, if this is somebody, I don't think this is somebody sitting in, in Russia who's doing this. My guess is it's somebody local, but that's just my guess. I don't know that for sure. But if if they're able to identify who this is and if they have a way of arresting him and bringing him to justice, I say do it. We're going to take a quick break back with a lot more. We've also at one o'clock, we're scheduled to hear the press conference involving a Sioux opera who is the district attorney in Waukesha County who handled the prosecution. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue. 
It's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. A couple texters are asking, essentially, do our laws prevent Daryl Brooks from profiting from any books, movies, etc., um, from what he did? Um, some states have that. I don't believe Wisconsin does a specific statute, but that that would be, I guess, one of the reasons why you would bring lawsuits against Daryl Brooks, get judgments against him. So to the extent that he tried to sell his story to Netflix or whatever, that the, the families of victims could could attach that money. Um, but I, I just again, I, I just I hope I hope, 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 hope. That, you know, you have, you know, I understand we live in this this area era of documentaries and stuff, and we uh, live in this era of revisionist stuff, but I hope that there's not some producer out there that says, you know, we, we can turn the, the Daryl Brooks story into a, into a miniseries, and we can show his life and stuff. I, you know, this, th- what this monster did was just terrible, and the, the sooner we put this aside, the, the better, the sooner we all forget about Daryl Brooks, and, and I'm not suggesting you forget about the, the tragedy of what happened in Waukesha and the carnage that he caused, but the sooner that Daryl Brooks as an individual, you know, this monster, that the sooner we stop giving him attention, the better things are going to be. Hey, on on other matters, just another day, another example of, I don't know, people making bad decisions, in this case, young people making bad decisions that are going to have permanent life consequences. On a daily basis on this program, we could spend an hour just talking about in the 24 hours between show to show, that the examples of reckless driving and carnage on the roadway and criminal activity that isn't, it's just not slowing down. So here's the dazzling story here. 48th and Good Hope. Now, when I was in law school a number of years ago, I lived off of 60th and Good Hope. So I grew up in Glendale. You know, I, I know that area pretty well. I mean, think about, oh, it's kind of in the area around where it's... Um, a triple I country club is or something right on Good Hope Road. I mean, a major thoroughfare there. Here's the story. The Milwaukee Police Department is investigating a serious vehicle accident that occurred Tuesday, October 25th near 48th and Good Hope Road. It happened around 5.40 p.m. So we're kind of in rush hour. Police say a 2018 Hyundai Elantra was traveling east on Good Hope Road at a high rate of speed when it collided with a tree. There were three people inside the car. The incident was not the result of a police pursuit. Okay, now here's the two dazzling details about this that shouldn't be a surprise. The 2018 Hyundai was listed as stolen out of Wauwatosa. So you've got people that are driving at a high rate of speed in a stolen car who apparently lose control of the car, smash into a tree. Bad stuff happens. Here's the other dazzling detail. Inside the car, and this was a situation where apparently after the collision, none of them ran from the police because they were all so seriously injured. All right, three people were inside the car. Okay, can I, can I see a show of hands out there? Do you want to guess how old the people were? Okay, let's do it like this. Everybody who thinks that these three people inside the car were over 18, can I see a show of hands? Hmm, not too many hands are going up. Okay, everybody who thinks that the three people inside the car were over the age of 16. Can I see a show of hands? Not too many hands going up. All right, but a couple. All right, now here's the deal. Three juveniles inside the vehicle driving the stolen car, high rate of speed. 
This isn't a police chase. They just flat out lose control of the car, smash into a tree. One juvenile, 14 years old. Two other juveniles, 15 years old. They were all taken to the hospital. Their condition is critical. So I I don't know if they're going to survive or not. But the car apparently split in half after hitting the tree. It was traveling so fast. Now, I can't tell you how, I mean, I can't tell you whether it was going 70 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour. All I can tell you is that after it slammed into this tree on like 48th and Good Hope, it split in half. The car split in half, 14 years old, 15 years old. A 14 and two 15-year-olds are driving at a high rate of speed in the stolen vehicle. How many more of these stories are we going to have to hear before we realize that, that this, this epidemic of car theft by juveniles is a big deal and it needs to be cracked down on? Because, I mean, the one thing, I mean, the only thing that's surprising about this is it wasn't a product of a police chase. And secondly, a lot of times what happens is when the kids are driving at the high rate of speed in a stolen car, they blow through the red light and they hit somebody else and end up killing them. In this case, three in critical condition. And, you know, who knows what the outcome is going to be. But a 14-year-old and two 15-year-olds, it is a story that repeats itself over and over and over again on a daily basis. And the only reason we hear about and talk about it is because in this case, the three of them darn near killed themselves. Maybe they, Maybe one or two will die. We don't know what that case is. But this happens all the time. It's got to stop. It's just got to stop. And it starts by revamping the juvenile justice laws to hold people accountable when they do this, because I will bet you dollars to donuts that these three kids, it wasn't the first time they were involved in driving in a reckless fashion in a stolen car. I want to update story we talked about in the 12 o'clock hour of the program yesterday. And we, we had, this was actually, it's kind of fun for me because we had, we had a heated discussion and I would say half the people agreed with me, half the people didn't agree. That, that's fine. That's if we all agreed about everything, life would be boring. But the story I was talking about is that a group of, of, of pediatricians have now come up with these new standards and are recommending that every child starting at age eight be tested and be given a series of questions to determine whether or not they are anxious and or or depressed. And and this is to be admitted across the board, regardless of whether or not the child shows any symptoms of this. And I question the wisdom of this. I mean, I remember a few years back, uh, you know, we we had this whole thing. It it seemed like almost every kid was being diagnosed with, you know, attention deficit disorder when it turned out they were just a normal nine-year-old boy that they ended up getting distracted. And my, my point was, it's one thing if you want to determine, okay, you know, let, let's look at what the kid is doing, and, you know, we can, if they're showing signs that they might be depressed or anxious or whatever, you can get involved, but do we want to take mostly, like, normal, healthy children and kind of plant these ideas in their mind? We had a heated discussion, and one of the callers said, no, 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 this, this is the greatest thing in the world, and this is how we stop school shootings, et cetera, et cetera. We, we get this early, you know, mental illness check. And it's worth it to ask all these sort of questions. And then we were both talking around this, and I, I, I got to thinking, what are the questions that they really ask? And, and so I, I did some research last night, and now th- there's a number of different questionnaires that you can use. But the one that is most commonly recommended is something called 
Screen for Child Anxiety-Related Disorders. Scared. <laughs> That's it, scared. That is going to be given to you know kids starting at the age of eight. And it's 40 different questions. And the way this is going to work is, depending on the pediatrician, if they decide to do this, you as the parent might be in the room or you might be told that you have to, to leave the room. And this is going to be given to all the different kids. Let me share with you some of the questions that they are, are going to be asking kids. And I've got the, the screening right here. It's 40 questions. I'm not going to read them all. But th- these are some of the questions that will be asked. And, and forget being 8 or 9 or 10. I mean, imagine if you were asked this question. Here's one of them. Um, I don't like to be with people I don't know well. Okay. All right. I, I, it is, okay. I don't like to be with people I don't know well. Can I see a show of hands? Everybody that would say yes. Uh, my producer Charlie saying, yeah. I mean, okay. Is that a sign of anxiety or is it just you, you don't like to be around people you don't know well? Um, I worry about other people liking me. Right? Can I see a show of hands? My producer Charlie is raising his hand. Okay, well, okay, right. I'm, I'm saying this. This is, can you imagine asking this question to an eight or nine-year-old? Every kid's going to answer, yeah, I worry about people not liking at me. Um, I feel nervous with people I don't know well. All right, can I, <laughs> my producer Charlie, his hand's up on this one too. Oh, okay, and this is, okay, I, all right, you're going to ask a nine or 10-year-old kid. This is, these are the screening tests that determine if the kid has anxiety. I worry about being as good as other kids. Okay, what 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 kid? My producer tried. You're, you're going to need to get mental treatment here because okay, did, I worry. Okay, I, can I see that? Hey, you know, do you worry about being as good as other people? Everybody's going to have their hands up. Okay, let's see. Um, I worry about going to school. Well, okay, um, when I get frightened, my heart beats fast. Okay, I mean, isn't that like one of the signs of when you're frightened? Um, I continue. I worry about things working out for me. Now, they're asking this to a 10-year-old to determine anxiety. I, I'm, I'm sorry. It seems to me it's kind of self-evident. Is there any of us out there that don't worry about things working out for you? When I get frightened, I sweat a lot. Okay, uh, let's see. It's hard for me to talk with people I don't know well. Okay. Okay, my poor producer, Charlie, who's not 10 or 11 years old, he's right. Okay, it's hard. For, I, I get it. It's hard for me to talk with people I don't know well. I, I would guess 80% of the population is going to answer that yes. All right. Um, I don't like to be away from my family. All right. Now, let's let's direct this. You're, I, I think you could talk about adults like that. I don't like to be away from my family. But, Amit, you're, you're asking an 8 or a 9 or a 10-year-old kid, do you like to be away from your family? Actually, if the kid says, yes, I, I, um, no, I, I don't mind being away from my family, that tells you that there might be some issue. Every kid is going to say, well, I like to be with my family, of course. Um, let's see. I continue. I worry that something bad might happen to my parents. Okay. I feel shy with people I don't know well. All right, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if I necessarily use the word shy, but, you know, people you don't know well, I think that that's, I don't know, that's not surprising if a 10-year-old kid would say yes. Um, I worry about what is going to happen in the future. Okay, show of hands again. Is there anybody out there that doesn't worry about what is going to happen in the future? We're, we're all going to qualify for this anxiety sort of stuff. Um, I worry about how well I do things. Okay, is there anybody, regardless of any age, that doesn't worry about how well they do things? Um, I worry about things that have already happened. Okay, this is my favorite. I feel nervous when I am with other children or adults, and I have to do something while they watch me. For example, read aloud, 
speak, play a game, play a sport. Okay, so you, you've got a, you know, you're, you're in a play or you're giving a public speaking thing. Show of hands and anybody that, that doesn't get nervous. I mean, heck, I do this for a living. I've been doing this for a living for, you know, 27 years. And before that, I was a trial lawyer. And before that, I was in politics and all that stuff. You still, if, if you don't get a little bit of surge of adrenaline or something like that, you're, there, there's something wrong with you. I feel nervous when I am going to parties, dances, or any place where there will be people that I don't know well. Okay. I mean, these are the tests to determine whether a child is anxious and might need follow-up treatment. And then the final one, I am shy. Okay. My guess is that the vast majority of 8-, 9-, and 10-year-olds, heck, maybe the vast majority of Teenagers are going to answer shy. So, I mean, I bring this up just because we, we spent a lot of time on it yesterday, and people were saying, oh, no, 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 we, we need to do this for all kids. And my point was, you know, you, if this is the kind of questionnaire you use, every single child is going to score, you know, is, is going to be answering affirmatively, we are going to have a nation of children that are otherwise normal, happy, healthy, well-adjusted, who are going to be diagnosed as having depression or anxiety or whatever, because these are just normal things. <laughs> I mean, you know, being being nervous around, you know, people you don't know, that's that that's that is a normal sort of situation. And my only point is if we're going to spend the resources and try to concentrate on mental health, maybe let's concentrate on the kids that are, I don't know, doing the drawings of the guns and talking about blood and stuff like that. Let's get that intervention as opposed to trying to create entire classes of kids that we think are suffering from anxiety or depression, when the truth is they're, they're just shy or they're just flat-out normal. All right, when we come back, let's talk about honors. One of my texters summarizes the reactions of a lot of the texters. Jeff, during that, I raised my hand so many times during that last segment, my arm is starting to hurt. Well, that, that, that see, that's that, that's it. I mean, and, and I like I say, we went through this with ADD, and, and you know, it was like, okay, you, you take all this. Look, and I understand there, there's kids that have attention deficit disorder, and they need treatment, they need medication, whatever. But you, you would take... In general, you know, you've got a, a, a nine-year-old, a normal nine-year-old boy that's got the attention span of a fruit fly, and all of a sudden, oh, this, this kid needs to be medicated or all those things. And, and I think, you know, we've moved away from that. Well, the, the latest thing is mental health, and it's almost like an assumption that, that everybody ha- has, you know, different mental deg- degrees of mental illness. Well, okay, I understand that there, there's people who have mental illness, and some of it manifests itself at very young ages, and we need to identify that. But having every pediatrician give a questionnaire like this, and, and I, just, I mean, I didn't read you all the questions, but you know, you, I, I think most kids, most adults would answer in the affirmative to uh, th- those 20 questions that I read. So what are we now going to do? We're going to create this entire generation of, oh, all these kids are, are suffering from anxiety and depression, and then we, we need to do this follow-up, and we need to do counseling? Well, no, it, it's—I'm it's, sorry, it's a normal experience to be, I don't know, uncomfortable to be giving speeches in front of large groups of people, or you get nervous before you play football in front of a bunch of people, or you, you just you see it. But of course, this is this is the latest thing that here we we have to we, because we are concerned with mental illness that manifests itself early, appropriately so. We we just have to treat like screen every kid for this instead of maybe concentrating our efforts for the kids that are manifesting some of that behavior. Okay. Um, when I was in school a long time ago, we had there, – there were two tracks of courses. By that, I mean we had honors courses and we had the regular courses. 
I, I've, I've told this story before. One of um, the guys I came up with through grade school and middle school and high school who went on to work for the National Institute of Health, which just Dan was absolutely brilliant. And, and he was a math genius. And I, I, do not, I do not say that lightly. He was just a flat-out genius. And I remember like in, in seventh grade or something, for some reason I decided I, I wanted to try to compete with him. It was all this self-taught math stuff and, you know, and you work at your own pace and all. And I tried to keep up with him. And I quickly learned that <laughs> this guy was a genius. And I, this, I was not going to be able to do it. Okay. Was I, I might have been anxious about that, but, but I just I, I came to that reality. So, you know, Dan went on in high school, and he was, where I went to high school, Nicolet, you had different tracks of math class. You had honors math, which were for the exceptional math students, and then you had the regular math classes. And I'm not embarrassed to admit I was in the regular math class. I did okay, but I was in the regular math class. I was not performing the honors level work. That's just the truth. I was in honors history. I was in honors English, but I, I, I wasn't in honors math because the work they were doing was of a higher level. I, I just, and it, it just, that's just the way it was. Okay. That's just the reality of what was out there. And the way it worked also is that if you were like in honors math, you got, I, I think extra, you got extra sort of credit. Like I think, you know, if you got an A in honors math, that counted like as a, as a 5.0 for your grade point average as opposed to the regular four. Okay, so you, you had that. And then, of course, you were on track for like these college placement courses where, you know, you could get college credit and stuff for the work that you were doing in high school. All right, I, I never, it never bothered me because I recognized that there were different levels of work. And I also appreciated the fact that I didn't want to be, I couldn't do the honors math work. Okay, that was just, it was beyond me. I, I wasn't that good. And at the same time, I didn't mind the fact that the, the kids who were exceptional in that, okay, let them, you know, they don't need to be in the regular math class. I mean, they're doing work at a much more sophisticated level. That's fine. Now, why do I bring this up? Because our friends out in the People's Republic of Madison, the Madison School District, is wrestling with the idea of, of what they do with honors. Here's the story. The Madison School District is reviving a controversial proposal to drop standalone honors classes in favor of expanding the use of earned honors credits in standard classes. The heart of the issue is equity. Students of color and lower-income students aren't accessing the district's standalone honors classes as much as their white and wealthier classmates. Um, and it goes on to say that, you know, so they, they have an honors math class. The district is apparently thinking about phasing out the standalone honors classes because, and they're going to be voting on this proposal, and what they're saying is, well, we, we think this is discriminatory because what we find is that you know certain types of students, whether it's because of the race or whatever, they're, they're not participating in this. Currently, the district offers both standalone honors classes and regular classes in which earning honors credit is an option. Students don't have to test into standalone honors courses or meet other requirements before signing up, just as long as they've fulfilled course uh, prerequisites. District officials did not answer questions about what students have to do to earn honors credit in a standard class, but students described it as having to do well on coursework. Okay, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. This war on honors courses, I, I think, is just one of the classic examples of, of dumbing down 
America. I think that if there is an issue with a certain type of student qualifying or participating in the honors class, the answer isn't to do away with the honors class. The answer is to figure out what you need to do working up to that. What do we need to do to get that particular student, whether it's because of color or ethnicity, whatever it is, we, we need to figure out what we can do early on to get that student working at a level that might qualify them for honors. I mean, isn't that the answer, as opposed to simply saying, okay, we're going to completely dumb down these honors courses, we're, we're not going to have them as a standalone, and we're going to let everybody get honors credit. No, honors courses are honors courses. You're doing higher, or at least you should be, doing a higher level of work and in return, you, you then get rewarded for this. I mean, it's kind of like, think, think about the real world and think about, you know, a, a business situation. You know, let, let's just take sales. If you've got somebody who's an honors salesperson, who's just kicking the butt out of all the sales targets and doing this and is great, that person is going to be compensated more than the person who's not doing a, as well. Do we do anybody any good at all? By not recognizing talent, and at the academic level, do we do people any good at all by saying, okay, we're, we're going to get rid of the honors classes because you know we don't want people to feel bad because they're not able to qualify for the honors classes or they're not able to do the work. Our number, 855-616-1620, we discuss. This is Jimmy Buffett's Math Sucks. All right. Way to go, Charlie, producing the show today and always. If they take away honors courses, Jeff, then they should take away different levels and sports teams so there aren't teams or varsity and everybody gets to play even though they're not equally talented. Um, Jeff, the world is desperate for people who are good at math. They will be well rewarded in the job market. Um, he just graduated MSOE, um, uh, hard work, but it's worth it. Um, great engineering job. Well, absolutely. We need to celebrate that the people that are incredibly talented in these areas and inspire people who, who want that. I mean, look, I, I, I had the greatest respect. I was talking about my buddy, Dan, I had the greatest respect for, for him. And I, I recognized early on, this guy was a genius. I wasn't going to be that good at that. So I had to find the, my own niche, but I didn't resent him. And candidly, I was glad I wasn't an honors math at Nicolay because I think I would have just gotten blown out. Um, you know, um, that's it, Jeff. I believe that students who don't qualify are either not as smart in those subjects, yeah, or, or maybe don't work as hard. Yeah, I think that that's true, too. I mean, there, there's no question about it. Jeff, what about high-achieving students who are bored out of their minds in dumbed-down courses? Why are, they, are, why are they being victimized by lower standards? We should push those students harder because they thrive on the challenge. Couldn't agree with me with you more. All right, when we come back, a lot of great stuff coming up in the 2 o'clock hour of the program. Do not go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Man, talk about dying in the saddle. Not sure one of our listener, why one of our listeners texted me this story, but here it is. British radio host dies on air mid-show after coming out of retirement to broadcast. 
Um, let's see. Tim Go, a, who suffered an apparent heart attack, has been on British radio since the 1980s. British radio host died while on live air during a breakfast show on Monday. Uh, Tim Goh, who hosted the morning show on Radio Gen X, is suspected to have had a heart attack at 7.50 a.m. while presenting the show from his home in Lackford, Suffolk. Uh, Gen X Radio Suffolk said in news release he was 55. Music playing on the station stopped for several minutes at the time his death of his death before starting again, the BBC said. The station said it was shocked and devastated beyond words at his passing. Um, and then they talk about how he had retired. Then he came out of retirement to uh, do the show. He'd been on the radio since the 1980s. Wow. Just absolutely wow. I guess maybe the answer to that is don't retire. I mean, or or don't come out of retirement and do the radio show. Not exactly sure, and still not sure exactly why one of our listeners texted me that, but you you have that. Hey, this story, and I, I, I have a, a reference to it. It's in the category of be careful what you wish for. And if you follow me on Twitter, I made reference to this. It, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. We have discussed and had some heated discussions about this particular issue. Live Nation is the the nation's big concert promoter. They want to get into the Milwaukee market, and they want to build a venue um, where it's it's like a four thousand seat venue where, and I don't even know that it's necessarily have chairs in it, but you know people will be able to stand and go to concerts. They they want to build that local operations, whether it's like the Rave or Turner Hall or the Milwaukee Theater, they don't want Live Nation coming in because they don't want the competition. They are afraid that if Live Nation comes in, Live Nation, which you know has contractual relationships with all sorts of bands, Live Nation will not let these bands perform at their venues, and so they won't be able to compete. That, that's the issue. And I will concede that somewhere down the line, Maybe there's going to be an antitrust issue, but but that's not present right now. So anyhow, the, these existing concert venues who are afraid of the competition or don't think that they're going to be able to compete, they have been trying to block this. The original proposal, the original location for a site was going to be down by by Summerfest in that area. And it actually, I thought it was kind of an ideal thing. You had lots of parking that was there, et cetera. But these, these concert venues who don't think they can compete, don't want the competition, they united with a bunch of people from the area, you know, neighbors, and they objected to this venue going in. And despite the fact that you got Summerfest in the amphitheater, they, they were arguing, okay, this is inappropriate, and it's, it's you know, an inappropriate use of, like, this lakefront property or, or whatever. And they were able to raise objections. So the Live Nation group said, okay, fine, we will drop our plans to build a location there. All right, applause, applause. Hey, this is great. We, we've, we've stopped this competition from coming in. Well, Live Nation's partnered with the Bucks, and what they're doing is they said, okay, you, you don't want us down by the lakefront. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build our venue on the site of where the Bradley Center used to be. Perfect location for us. It, it's really in the heart of the Deer District. You've already got all that parking that's in the area. You've got that those ready-made bars and stuff that, that are there. And to cement it, they said, okay, we're also, we'll build this thing with union workers. We'll staff it with union workers. So a lot of these groups that, again, were were opposing this because they they don't think they can compete. They're afraid that they're not going to be able to compete. By, By claiming victory 
in, in getting the, the less desirable spot on the lake rejected, all they've done is now they're building this new place, and it went through a Common Council committee um, two days ago, and it's going to pass through the whole Common Council because members of the Common Council are correctly saying, look, we've, uh, when, we're, when we're looking at zoning for these things, you know, we, we don't consider whether it's going to provide competition. We, we don't say you can't put the Walmart here if the area is zoned for Walmart simply because that might drive Frank's hardware store out of business four blocks away. I mean, they, the, the city doesn't use zoning to restrict competition, yet that is precisely what is going to happen. So this is in the category, and I've got a link to this story, be careful what you wish for. Like I say, opponents of the proposed new concert venue— you know, fearing competition. They killed the original location near Summerfest, but now what's happened is it, it, it's being revised, it's going to occur, and it's going to be built in a much more desirable spot in the Deer District, which, if anything, I think will make this new venue more attractive to go to. It's a more desirable location. So, again, be careful what you wish for. What's the term? Puric victory? Puric victory? That they, oh, they stopped it for a little bit, and all they did is succeed in having it generated and put in a more desirable place. Uh, and it didn't work out very well. Another update on a story. Um, John Tate, he was the hand-chosen guy by Tony Evers to run the, the Evers Parole Commission. And, of course, this has become this huge effort, issue in, in the governor's debate that you know Tony Evers has made no bones about it. His position is he wants to cut the Wisconsin prison population in half. There are only two ways you do it. First, you take people who are in prison and you release them. The second thing is you appoint judges who are less likely to send people to prison in the first place, right? That's the only—those are only two ways that you get, you know, cutbacks in the prison population. So what happened is— and, you know, you've, you've seen this play out in the ads. The Evers Parole Commission, which was headed by a guy named John Tate, who was from Racine, what they did is they started on this systematic proposal of just letting dangerous people out of prison. And, you, you know, you're starting to, to see this. And, you know, in many cases, I've got some links to some of these stories. They're, they're out there. They're reoffending. Um, but they're, they're people who should not be released from prison, but because the mandate of the Evers administration was, let's reduce the prison population, you know, John Tate was doing that. Well, because this is an election year, and it's really only because it's an election year, Tony Evers, I think, realized how disastrous this was, so he needed a fall guy, so he fired John Tate, right? But my point has always been, this is this doesn't change Evers' philosophy. If Evers is reelected in less than two weeks and gets a full four-year term, I mean, it's going to be literally Katie bar the door because whether it's John Tate or somebody else, Evers wants to release these people. That That is his mission. And if he's not hampered by the fact that he's going to have to run for reelection, or at least he has four years to run for reelection, you know that there's going to just be an enormous flood of people that are being released. But anyhow, John Tate ends up being the fall guy because Evers, after one of these high-profile cases, recognizes there's a lot of political heat and he needs to have the fall guy, so he fires John Tate. Okay, so he dumps him. Tate, who is an elected official in Racine, then applies for this job. Remember we talked about this out in Madison. He was going to be at a salary of $125,000. They were going to hire the guy who was a train wreck on the parole commission to be the Madison police monitor. 
So he was going to be the guy that, like, worked in oversight of, of the police department. How would that have worked out? Well, anyhow, he backs out of that job. Madison is probably lucky. He backs out of the job. Why? Because he's gotten a job offer in Racine, and he's going to be um, the new violence prevention manager, you know, in, in Racine. And the mayor kind of like greased the skids. In all the different stories I've seen, I haven't seen how much they're going to pay this guy, but I assume it's more than 125000 or at least comparable to that that he was going to make. Well, there's now a problem with that because apparently um, state law prohibits elected officials, and, and he's an elected official in Racine, from taking positions that were created during their term in office. So that they've hired him for this job, but he can't take it until his term expires, presumably next year or something. So it's just been this absolute, complete, and total kind of cluster as you have these different government entities who try to find a soft landing spot for the guy that Tony Evers ended up you know, canning because he was essentially doing what Tony Evers wanted to do. Where will John Tate end up next? Lord only knows. couple texters saying that I was talking about the story about the British radio's host who, who died on air and they, they did they apparently they had dead air I mean no, no pun intended you know they, they stopped playing music and stuff and it, it's a couple texters saying we don't want that to happen to you to which I said thanks I don't want that to happen to me either I I, I genuinely I genuinely appreciate that you know <laughs> and that's that's not I don't know how you want to go but that's that's not that, that's not the way that I want to go, because then poor Charlie would have to figure out, do we go to commercial? You know, what do we do? What's going on with Jeff? No, I don't think there's any danger of that happening. You know, the um, elections, less than two weeks. As a matter of fact, I, early voting started yesterday. My wife and I, we, we went out and voted yesterday morning. Um, there's going to be, I think if, if you look at a lot of the national polls, it's very, very clear that there is, in fact, a, a red wave that, that's developing. Um, most smart money says that the Republicans nationally are going to retake the House of Representatives. And it looks like in Wisconsin, the Republican who's running in the Ron Kind seat in the lacrosse area, he, he's going to win. Matter of fact, you know, Democrats have pretty much pulled out, you know, money and advertising time that was being bought. It, it's been pulled out. Um, I think they're, they're conceding that seat. But I, I think there's going to be Republican pickups. The big question is, you know, what's going on in the U.S. Senate? And right now, as we know, the Senate is deadlocked 50-50. Um, depending on who you look at, I, I think pretty much everybody agrees that it's going to be a, a pretty much of a toss-up. Uh, the Republican candidates in Arizona and in Nevada are, are, are slightly ahead in the polls, and that would probably be a determinant as to whether or not Republicans take control of the Senate. Um, in addition, this Herschel Walker story continues to just be, be kind of mind-blowing to me. Um, I, I mean, I've argued this before. I, I think Mandela Barnes was the weakest of the four candidates who were, were running, you know, in the Democratic primary. But for a lot of different reasons, the, the decision was made here. Everybody else is going to drop out. We're, we're not going to vet Mandela Barnes. We're just going to let him kind of cruise in. And, and you've seen the fact that Mandela Barnes is, in my opinion, completely and totally unqualified to be in the United States Senate. This is, you know, with all the different stuff and the things he's done, his background and all the different crazy positions he's taken. And, and you're starting, you know, to see that. And most of the polls 
internally and I think externally, you know, show that Ron Johnson is ahead by, it's a close state, but by ahead, I would expect he's going to win by two or three or four points. That's where I think that that race is. But um, the one of the interesting races that is, is very much out there is, is Georgia. And just like I think Mandela Barnes is an absolutely terrible candidate for the Democrats, you can make the argument that, that Herschel Walker— now, Herschel Walker, you might remember that, a big football star, Heisman Trophy winner out of Georgia, maybe the greatest football player to come out of Georgia. People could argue about a couple others, perhaps. But, you know, big football player um, aligned with Donald Trump. He was the, the chosen candidate by Republicans in Georgia. And matter of fact, there were a couple other candidates who I think were outstanding candidates, but they kind of got brushed aside because here we're, we're going to go all in with our, our local hero, Herschel Walker. Well, Herschel Walker's he's got baggage. There's just no question about it. And the story today is you know, Herschel Walker is proclaims to be pro-life, and there's stories that are emerging about now there's another woman coming forward and saying, well, you know, he drove me to get an abortion years and years ago. Um, so you, you've got you've got some of this baggage that's there. Now the interesting thing in in the most is that in the most recently released polls, Walker is ahead. Walker has just had everything imaginable thrown at him, but he's he's in a depending on which poll you look at, either a tie or ahead by a point or two over the you know current senator who won and who's got baggage himself. He tried to run down his wife or something in a car at one point in time. But it it is going to be interesting to see how this kind of stuff plays out. And you know that there's going to be some October surprises. Like I say, the recent headline is, another woman claims that Herschel Walker, you know, drove her to the abortion clinic and paid for the abortion. I'm not sure that in Georgia that's going to make a difference. I'm I'm not sure that whether he did it or didn't do it years ago, I'm not sure whether that's going to play in. But you have... You have some of these deeply flawed candidates who are running for office and who may very well win. The other race that I I just don't know what's going to happen here is the the Pennsylvania race with, you know, Dr. Oz, you know, the, the TV sort of doctor who's running against Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. The... The, the story there is Fetterman had a stroke, you know, a couple months ago. They had a debate last night. I, I watched a portion of the debate, and it, it was painful because Fetterman clearly hasn't—it was a severe stroke, and he clearly hasn't recovered. And as as is typical of people who have had strokes, I mean, he was having trouble putting words together and things like that. And you can draw—I mean, I don't know what that means, and I'm not—I'm not arguing that means he's unqualified or, or whatever. But it was a—it a, was sort of painful to watch at some point in time because he's, he's clearly—I mean, he's recovering from the stroke. We all hope that he recovers from the stroke very, very well, of course, as you would. But it was clear that, that he was struggling. So now you've got this situation of is—is is that going to change the dynamic at all? But you have all these different races with all these different things, whether it's Herschel Walker and the abortion issue, or whether the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, who's clearly still in the recovery process from a stroke, who's running for office, and, and all the other stuff that's out there. I'm going to tell you something. It really is true. You you better buckle your seatbelts over the next two weeks, because I mean it is going to be a bumpy, bumpy ride. <laughs> Yeah, I was just listening to that. The, the Packers are, are kind of a dumpster fire right now, and you know, I mean, they're they're 
what, more than 10-point underdogs going into uh, Buffalo on, on Sunday night, and you hope they can surprise. But given what you've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, they're, they're a team in disarray. And I hear that, and I, I, Aaron Rodgers, of course, has always been an incredibly quirky and, and yet talented guy. But the, same, the truth is Aaron Rodgers at 38 is not the player he was when he was 30. That, that's, and that's, he can still perform at a high level, but he, he's, not, he's not the player that he was eight years ago where you can expect him to take the entire team and put it on his, his shoulders and, and carry him. I mean, he, and the supporting cast hasn't been, I, I think, playing up to style. At the same time, I, I listen to these comments and I'm thinking, you know, this isn't helpful. I just, I mean, if I'm the coach or the general manager, you, you know, you, you don't need Aaron Rodgers, you know, going on public shows and, and essentially, and, and everybody knows who he's talking about. You know, he's at least on the team, they know who he's talking about when he's saying that people need to be benched and stuff. That's, you know, your, your job, it seems to me your job as quarterback is to, you're supposed to inspire the people around you to be better, not go publicly and talk about, oh, this person's making too many mistakes and they, they need to get benched. Look, I, I mean, I, I'm the guy that said they should cut Amari Rodgers. I mean, he's just, he's lousy and he, he's hurting the team, but I'm, I'm a guy on the outside. I'm, it's, you know, you don't go into your workplace and then publicly, I don't think, you know, do interviews saying, hey, I think we should get rid of Phil in, in the blank because I don't think he or she is performing. It's just, it's, it, it's, I just think it's bad form. And he might be right. He might be right that, you know, so-and-so, I mean, so-and-so shouldn't be playing or whatever, but you don't need to say that publicly, do you? All right. Let us completely and totally switch the years. What is your magic number? And, and I, there's an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today that just kind of caught my attention. And I'm, you know, and I always, you know, we talk about the heavy stuff and things like that. We spend time talking about Daryl Brooks and politics. But every once in a while, there's some of these stories that just they're slice of life things that impact all of us. Some of us sooner than later. But it, it gets me thinking. So here's the question. Northwestern Mutual, you know, our local financial uh, services company, they just did a they did a survey, and they asked Americans what their magic number was for retirement. That is, how much people thought they needed. Uh, Debbie Lazica walks in the studio. She's now thinking how much they think they needed savings in order to retire. Now, here, here's one of the the scary things. Um, you know, um, they say the average amount in a retirement savings account has now dropped to $87,000. That, that's average. That's an 11% decline from 2021. The expected retirement age, you know, two years ago when they did this, they asked and people said, well, I think we're going to be able to retire at 62 and a half. Now it's ticked up to 64. People think that they have to work. Debbie Lasker says 80. <laughs> okay. All right. But the, the operative question that they asked people is, okay, you know, how – what do you think you're going to need? How much money do you think you're going to need to be able to to retire? And then, of course, the question becomes, you know, can, can you get there? So I, I will tell you what the magic number is, at least according to the survey, in just a moment. But I thought this might be kind of an interesting discussion. So, And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're nearing retirement or whether you're a long way away from retirement. Obviously, that's one of the things that everybody thinks about, because no matter how much you love your job, well, there, there's other things in life, too, that you're, you're probably going to love. Everybody thinks about retirement at some point in time. My question is, what do you think the magic number is? How much do you think you need to retire? 
once you get to that savings level, okay, now I don't need to work anymore. I, I can retire. Now, it might be that you still you choose to work you know, because you like what you do and all those sort of things. Um, so that, that's, not, that's not the question. It's more like what do you think you need in order for you to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm ready to – I'm just ready to, to move on. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. What do you think that magic number is? And then I guess the related question is, do you think you're ever going to get there? Okay, so Northwestern Mutual has this survey, and, and the question they ask is, what is your magic number? How much do you think you need to, to retire? How much do you think people need to retire, and, and do you think you can get there? Um, let's see. Northwestern Mutual survey found that many Americans are worried about their prospects for retirement. About 4 in 10 people said they don't think they will have, mon- have enough money when they retire. Nearly half of the people surveyed also said they can envision scenarios where Social Security no longer exists. See, I don't think that's likely. I, I think— you know, whether benefits can stay at the same level or is a different uh, story. COVID-19 pandemic has also shaken up retirement plans for Americans. About one in four people said they now plan to retire later because of the pandemic. Of those who were putting off retirement, 59% said they wanted to work more. They wanted to work to save more money. 45% said they were worried about rising health care costs or had unexpected medical costs. Now, of course, the government, Social Security, if you're on it or qualify for it, uh, the checks are going up 8.7% next year, but that, that's only because costs have gone up 8.7%. The IRS has also made inflation adjustments for 401k savings accounts, You meaning you can, if you can afford it, um, you can save up to $22,500, you know, in a retirement account. If you're over 55, you can do the catch-up, which takes it up to um, thirty grand. Um, 855-616-1620. What's your magic number? Let's start with Peter in Glendale. Hi, Peter. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Good. What's your magic My number? My magic number uh, between wife and I about 500K. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's between house value and annuity and savings and all of that. Oh, you're so you're including total net worth. You're thinking about house value and all that stuff in there, huh? Well, possibly, you know, we're that that'll be partial. That'll put us well above that. But mm-hmm. right now, personal savings annuity is probably about three fifty now. But I'm in my seventies, but I'm planning to work until into my eighties. Wow. So, have you ever? Do you like what you do? I'm I'm intrigued by that because I. I I, I know people who are working in their 80s, even though they have the financial wherewithal to retire, but they, they like what they do. Yeah. I also know people who retired in their 50s because they, they didn't like what they did and they just wanted to stop it. So are you yeah. working because yeah. you like what you do? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Fair enough. I mean, I'm in leasing end of real estate and it has good and bad days. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Well, I think well, we could well, all say it. Yeah. No, thanks, yeah, Akai. Good. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a, that's a fair question. People say, do you, do you like what you do? And I, I say, I love what I do, but there, there, there are days. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no question. There, there are days. But in general, I love what I do. Jeff, for many years, I thought $1 million was enough to retire. I retired at 62 in March of 2020, had $1.5 million a year ago. Um, however, 
thanks to policies, substantially less now. Haven't looked at a statement in six months as we haven't withdrawn anything yet. Well, that's, that is the, the thing, that for everybody who was, and for people who say, oh, what, what's going on in the stock market doesn't matter. Well, it's easy to say, oh, it's only paper losses. Well, still, you, you make, that's always been the point. You, you make plans based on, you know, what your, your paper nest egg is and how much it's going to last you over time. And the truth of the matter is that, okay, well, you know, if you had X amount and now you've got 25% less than X over the course of the year, that does, um, that does uh, affect, um, I, I think, how those things work. Jeff, I'm 65, I'm currently retired, but it's going to take me a long time to catch up with what my IRAs have lost this year. Yeah, I, you do wonder whether there's people that retired in the last year or so who are having kind of retirement remorse because you, you thought that. But anyways, the question is, what's the magic number? Jeff, I think it's about a million dollars, which is terrifying for me. I'm about 10 years from retirement. I've only got about $300,000 saved now, and I'm already tired. Well, that that is the, the thing. Jeff, I'm shooting for $4 million. Have 12 more years until retirement. Um, I need about a million and a half more to reach our goal. Jeff, for me, it's a million dollars per spouse. That's kind of where the the thinking is. Jeff, $2 million. I got there, but then last year killed that. Last year did that from a lot of people. Um, It's interesting. I mean, a lot of our texters, and I'm getting a ton of them, are all talking about you know, th- those are kind of the numbers that are being thrown around, and they're talking about how they're at least on track to do this. Jeff, tonight's Powerball, that's going to just about do it. Yeah, that's, um, that's an idea. Is that the, is that the, that's the retirement strategy. I'm out there, I'm picking up the Powerball tickets. Well, I don't know. Anyway, so what is the number? What is the magic number according to the survey? And surprisingly, I mean, a lot of our, maybe not surprisingly, a lot of our texters were kind of around on that, um, the... The number when they asked this question in 2021, the the number that was thrown around was a million dollars. That was it. If I could have a million dollars, I would feel comfortable retiring. Um, now that's gone up. It's now 1.25 million to retire comfortably. And I think again that the scary thing though is is the disconnect that even though you got more and more people who are answering this question saying that they they want more money, they they you know, they, they need more money to retire. Um, the average amount in a retirement savings account has dropped this year to 86000 bucks. So, I mean, if the idea is I need a million or a million two, and you're at 87000 you, you've got a ways to go. Now, there's no reason to panic, and I understand... It's. I understand it's tough to save money, but believe me, I get it. When you've got you know inflation that's you know going that's at an eight point seven percent you know rate, and you've got the costs that are going up and all the different charges that are there, it's tough to save money. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of people who are very very glad that they started saving money, you know, early on. Jeff, I think people with pensions would have a different answer compared to people with four hundred one k's. A pension. Um, you know, retire, provides retirement income annually in perpetuity. A 401k is nothing more than a savings account. Well, that, that, that is true. I think the um, thing you see, though, is the, the conventional pensions. Those, those just don't flat exist that much anymore. Now, if you're a teacher, if you're a public employee, if public employees would be teachers, I mean, if you're a public employee, you know, chances are that you have a, a pension. If you are, um, 
I don't know, worked in a union shop, for example, depending on, on what the industry was, you, you might have a pension. But the, the vast majority, I think, of people out there, the, these idea of pensions, they're, they're just gone. Um, they, they don't have that at all. Jeff, I'm thinking $2 million for retirement in my accounts. That doesn't include my home value, which will also be paid off by retirement. And then, of course, I mean, there's all the lifestyle issues and, you know, how you want to live. But um, the magic number to answer the question, Americans now think they need at least $1.25 million for retirement. And um, unfortunately, while the numbers of what they expect is going up, the numbers of what people have is, is going down. So I don't know. I think maybe collectively we all need to get with it if that's unless everybody wants to work until they're 95 years old. Before we turn it over to John McCure, there, there's one other story I, I just wanted to mention because it, it shows and demonstrates the brazenness of, of crime around here. And this, this comes from Fox 6. Milwaukee car thieves caused a lot of destruction for one vehicle. So here, here's what happens. Badger Auto Shop, 59th and Appleton. Um, The owner says, it looks like a demolition derby had taken place in our lot. Okay, so the guy comes in, the owner comes in early yesterday morning, and he finds four cars on the lot damaged and one gone. Um, Apparently what happened, they've got security footage from 2 a.m. Four people show up, and they're trying to steal a a Kia Optima that is on the lot. But the problem is they, they don't it's, – it's not that they can't break into the car, and it's not that they can't get it started, but apparently the, the car is blocked in because you've got all these other cars here. So they got you four – they said young individuals deciding how and which way they're going to move the blocker truck off the lot so they can steal the Kia. So with cars and concrete barriers lining the lot, the footage shows the driver of the stolen Kia hitting other cars – Eventually, after about 45 minutes, the driver rammed into and moved a large truck meant to block the exit and entrance. So four cars get get destroyed, and one car gets stolen, Also, they can drive off the lot. But the thing that really struck me about the story and looking at the footage is it took these punks 45 minutes. I mean, you, you want to talk about no fear of consequences. They're, they're ramming cars. They're playing demolition derby all to try to get this one car out of the lot, banging into all these cars, and they're there for 45 minutes. No fear, no concern, no nothing, because they know that, first of all, the chances of them getting caught are slim to none, and slim is probably getting ready to jump on a bus out of town. But secondly, even if they get caught, they know that there's nothing that's going to happen to them. That we we got to get past that. Because until we instill a little bit of fear of consequences, you're going to have this stuff go on and on. And in this case, you've got this guy who's running this auto lot. Okay, four cars destroyed or wrecked, one car stolen for people who just, they just don't think anything's going to happen to them. And my guess is the people that are doing this are probably 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, no fear of consequences. They've probably done it a lot more than they've ever been caught because they know nothing's going to happen to them. It's a rhetorical question, but I say, when is it going to end? 